Welcome to the Hot Chicks Write Hot Books podcast with Jen Foster and Melanie Johnson, where authors give you their inside secret tips on how to be a successful best-selling author. Hi, I'm Melanie Johnson along with Jen Foster, your host. If you would like to publish and write your book, we invite you to come to one of our book writing retreats. You can go to bookwritingretreat.com or if you'd like to work with Jen and I one-on-one, you can go to eliteonlinepublishing.com and we would love to help you write and publish your book. Um, Today we have Dr. Suzanne Mouton-Odom as our guest. She is going to tell us about her um, expertise, which is working with people with OCD and with hair pulling and skin picking, which is a really hot topic. She has written uh, two books and she has another one on the way. So we're going to discuss how she went about writing her books and researching and um, what she did and how she marketed them. And then she's really going to dive into the issues of OCD and hair pulling and skin picking. So um, I hope you're ready and here we go. Welcome Dr. Suzanne. So nice to have you today. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to specialize in this. Well, I'm a licensed psychologist um, in Houston, Texas. I'm in private practice and probably about 20 years ago I got interested in treating OCD and hair pulling and skin picking. Um, and probably the reason why those particular areas of interest were important to me was because people actually get better. The treatment is evidence-based and it works. And so it's really not only um, helpful to the patient, but it's helpful for me to be able to see people actually get better. And why did you decide to write a book? Well, I, I think that um, the hair pulling book, which is actually geared toward parents, we wrote because I felt like we kept saying the same things over and over to parents. And now it just makes it so much easier to say, hey, we have this book, why don't you read this between now and next session, and then we can talk about it. And it kind of gives them sort of a historical understanding, a conceptual understanding, and helps them to develop some empathy for their child. So it's just real helpful to give a lot of information to parents and and to help normalize and help them develop compassion for their child without me having to spend hours and hours doing that. Well, I love that, too, because you took something that you're saying over and over and over again, and you're making it easier on yourself and better for your clients so that they can read it and get all the information they need so they're ready for the next appointment. So I love that. Well, that's the hope, anyway. Mm -hmm. That's a great tip for anyone who's in a business to take those questions that they're getting all the time and compile that and make a book out of it. So that was really smart. Plus you get to share it with other people who maybe are not your clients or couldn't be your clients, but you have a worldwide audience now to give those to them. Right. You mentioned that you co-author your book and tell us the process of that and how you um, like that versus maybe doing it by yourself. Sure. So I sit on the uh, scientific advisory board for the Trichotilla Mania Learning Center, which is an organization that benefits people with both hair pulling and skin picking disorders. And a colleague of mine, Ruth Gollum, who is in Silver Spring, Maryland, and I thought of this idea to write a book for parents. Each year we give a talk to parents at the national convention, but we thought, let's take our ideas and write them down and actually, you know, as you said, give this to a worldwide audience. And so it was kind of an iterative process. I'd write a chapter, send it to her, she'd edit, send it back while I'm working on chapter two. And it just kind of flowed and 
sort of molded into a book in about a year's time. And so it was a nice, collaborative, supportive process. We work very well together. And the book that I'm working on right now is also with this same co-author. And it's, um, I don't know that that is a process that one could do with everyone, but she and I work really well together and are able to give feedback in a way that nobody gets their feelings hurt and, um, and it can be heard. And I think we have a better product for it. That's excellent. It's always good when you have someone that you work well t together with, and for you to co-author a book is a great, great idea. I've co-authored books, and it, it works really well. You can just bounce stuff back and forth and get the right book done. How do you think, because um, you're both doing this, so she's getting to use it for her business as well as you are, um, how do you think it's helped your business writing a book? I think it lends credibility anytime you've written a book, and that's your area of expertise and it's also what you're treating to that particular patient or the parent of the patient. I just think it, it kind of steps you up in terms of level of authority and wow this person must really know what she's talking about. Um, these books are clinically based in that we've worked with thousands of people with these disorders but they're also evidence-based and really draw upon the research and what we know works with mm -hmm. the people with these conditions and so um, I think I think on every level it just helps not only my private practice but also um, establishes me as more of a um, worldwide sort of authority on these issues. That's so true. Now you say you speak, so do you use your books um, while you're speaking, and or has the book helped you get speaking engagements? Both. Um, I speak anyway, at, both at the Trichotillo Mania Learning Center mm -hmm. National Conference, but also at other conferences around the world. And I always bring my books um, with me to just sort of put a plug in, and if you're interested, buy the book. But, um, but also I think, again, it lends credibility, and, and people want to walk away with just a little more information or more in-depth knowledge of the topic, they can certainly do that. That's awesome. Now, I'm going to go bounce back to when you're writing. So what is your writing style like? Um, how do you come up, you've got the chapters, you've got the information in your head. How, uh, is there a certain time of day that you like to do it? Do you like to record yourself? What is your style of getting the content out? Well, I think what works best for me is to start with an outline of the book. You know, we have the overall concept, but then we go chapter by chapter and we write chapter one, you know, the title or a working title, and then we flesh out an outline of each chapter. And so as the, as the ideas get sort of put together and um, the outlines get formulated, we figure out which information is going to go in which chapter, if we're using case studies, where we would plug those in, and to make sure that all the information that we want to cover is going to get covered in the book. Um, and at the end of that process, really the book's almost written itself. It's just sort of filling in the blanks and fleshing out the different sections, and that's when it gets to the really fun part. I think, I think the beginning part in building the outline of all the chapters and sort of writing those paragraphs is probably the most important but maybe the most difficult piece. Um, as far as when I write, I love to write early in the morning. I get up super, super early. I won't even tell you what time. Um, it's quiet in my house, and um, I'm not at risk for getting disturbed by anyone. I also love to write on airplanes. Uh, I spend a lot of time on planes going to different conferences, and just to have three or four hours on a plane without anybody talking to me um, is also nice. 
I love airplane time. That's like I, I get more accomplished in those three hours when I'm flying somewhere, I think, than any other time of the week or day. Airplane awesome. time is awesome. Great tips. Really good. Finding that quiet spot and that quiet time that, uh, that you can really put your head into the game and really focus on writing. Right. And I, I really need a chunk of time. I'm not one of those people that can just work for 10 minutes or 15 minutes at a time. I like to have at least an hour if I'm going to revise a chapter or revise a portion of a chapter. Um, I find that I go back over and over and over again. Um, and it's oftentimes after maybe not looking at a chapter for a month and then go back and read it fresh so that I can, um, you know, just ha put fresh eyes on it and having thought about different ideas for the chapter, oftentimes I'll change change a good portion of it or add um, a little more detail. Um, and it's just helpful to come back after a few weeks. Yeah. So, so how long would you say it takes you and your partner, Sherry, to write a book? What has your timeline generally been, just to give people an idea? So for us both, all the books that I've written collaboratively have taken about a year um, to do the, the actual writing of the book. Now then there's editing and then there's, you know, other, you know, coming up with cover design and uh, those sorts of things, illustrations. But really, I, it's taken me about a year each time we've done this process. Mm -hmm. And about yeah. how long are your, are your books? Yeah. Of, yeah, good question. They're about 200 pages, so not super lengthy. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah, that's good. Well, 200 pages is about right. Um, we've been told, and I've heard from many experts, that if your book is more than 250 pages, it's most likely not going to get read all the way through because <laughs> people don't have time. And that's like self-help type books. I'm sure novels and that, you know, you're going to read all the way through because you want to know what's at the end. But for, for the self-help type books or the books that are going to teach us something, um, if they're too long, people don't read them all the way. So... That's about a good good average 200 pages is great. I think so. Yeah, now you had um, shared with me, we had a conversation before that um, about you had really had taken one book. Kind of tell me about um, that you have actually three books on Amazon. But tell us the story about the second book and what you did with that. So the first book for parents of kids with trichotillomania who pull out their hair was called Stay Out of My Hair. And actually the name came from one of my clients who was in middle school at the time and she looked at her mom during session once and just said at the top of her voice, stay out of my hair, mom. And I said, oh my gosh, can I use it for the title of our book? And I loved it. I thought it was great. My co-author loved it. We named the book that. Um, and for about two or really three or four years, we sold the book under that title and it sold okay. But we got feedback from some parents that it was a little off-putting and it, was, it kind of felt to them like we were saying, don't help me or you know I don't want to talk about it and just stay out of my business which is in fact a lot of what we were saying in the book um, but what we decided is they didn't want to hear it in the title and it was keeping them from reading it and so what, when parents would read the book they oh my gosh we love it this is great content so we thought maybe if we entitled it a little bit differently we would get more people's buy-in up front so that the iteration of the book is um, a parent guide to hair pulling disorder um, which is more of a boring title in my opinion, but, um, but anyway, it has sold actually a whole lot better. 
And so we're thinking it probably has to do with the title. Yeah, well, and one thing that you did with the new title is you put your keywords in your title. And that's really key for when someone is looking for hair pulling disorder books because they're going to find your book because you have that name and title. Exactly. That's great. Yeah. That was probably the major difference. And that's what we teach is you, know, you might fall in love with the title because you think it's cut, catchy, but it doesn't really have keywords in it. It's not necessarily what your audience is going to be looking for when they're looking for that book. Right. So, um, yeah, we really consult on that because you think, oh, this sounds so great and you love it, but it's not necessarily what your audience is going to love. And um, there's good ways to even test that kind of stuff afterwards. Uh -huh. Right. So the, the next book that we wrote that I wrote with a different co-author, um, the one on OCD, is called um, Out of the Rabbit Hole, A Roadmap to Freedom from OCD. Um, and we really took some of that information and put the keywords in the title, um, but also used sort of a catchy metaphor, Out of the Rabbit Hole. Mm -hmm. And throughout the entire book, we used the Alice in Wonderland theme and, uh -huh. and standing up to your OCD and not listening to the Queen of Hearts. And, and the, <laughs> the whole... The whole book is is getting out of the rabbit hole, mm -hmm. um, and and that book was written with my co-author who actually suffers with OCD, and had been in treatment with another psychologist here in Houston and did beautifully in treatment, and um, became a, an acquaintance of mine and now is a friend and um, we did she's a fiction author, and so it almost reads like a fiction novel. It's her story. It's sort of how she developed OCD and how she got out of the rabbit hole, and I just kind of helped tell the story from a psychology perspective, how the treatment works, what she did that um, helped lead to her improvement, and, and how the process works. So that was a super fun book to write. Well, that kind of leads us in. Tell us a little bit about what OCD is and what some of your uh, top treatments are that really help people overcome it. Because, you know, some people may think you can never overcome it. It's just kind of a Band-Aid on it. But you're saying, really, you can really cure this. Well, and, and I hate it when people say that. You know, there's no cure for OCD. And I think that's sort of like saying there's no cure for diabetes. Well, people manage their diabetes all the time to where it's not an issue for them. And I think OCD is the same. So there's sort of a misfire in the brain where a person is alerted to sort of these false alarms, thoughts that generate great anxiety for them. And, and there's all different flavors of OCD. It could be um, a fear of harm to oneself or a fear that you might harm someone else. Um, and that could be contamination. That could be through um, violent thoughts or images, sexual thoughts or images, um, superstitious kinds of thoughts. Um, if you step on a crack, you know, you break your mother's back, those sorts of things. And so what OCD means is there's a thought or an obsession which raises a person's anxiety mm -hmm. to an extreme degree, and then they perform some action or compulsion or what we call a ritual that reduces their anxiety. And that is very powerful. And so they learn really quickly, oh, if I just do this thing, whether it's check the door 15 times or wash my hands or whatever it might be, that will make me feel better. And so it becomes more of an anxiety management tool mm -hmm. that helps people in a way feel in control of their anxiety, but the truth is it's very out of control. People spend seven, eight, ten hours a day engaging in these rituals just to get that instant gratification, which ten minutes later starts building again. Um, so the treatment is um, exposure response prevention, which is to help a person to allow that thought to be there, to allow that anxiety to be there, and to not perform the compulsion or ritual, um, which really makes their anxiety kind of skyrocket for a little bit, 
And then over time, that anxiety comes down naturally. And they realize, oh, that bad thing that I was so frightened of happening didn't happen. And they learn, I can live through this. I can survive it. And after much, much practice, eventually don't even need to perform the compulsions. Yeah, and I have to say, I um, I have a son who has OCD, and we went to go see uh, Dr. Suzanne, and uh, he had a terrible twitch. I mean, he was twitching and making noises, and he was doing it every three seconds. And uh, literally, when we walked into her office, I would say it was maybe 10, 15 minutes later that he became calm and stopped. She walked him through this process, and it was like a miracle. You think this couldn't happen? It couldn't stop right away. My son looked at me and said, "I can't believe it was this easy. I feel so stupid that it was that simple to get rid of this." And, well, that was a lucky. That was lucky, and he was so great. He's he's such a um, he was so open to the idea of embracing sort of the thoughts or the scary images, and and so that was that was one of those perfect examples of of how ERP works. Unfortunately, it isn't always that simple and straightforward. And as he learned, it really does take practice over time. Because our, a person who suffers with OCD is sort of wired toward that. Mm -hmm. And so if they don't keep practicing and keep um, sort of you know, doing this exposure and response prevention process, the obsessions and compulsions can sneak back in. And so, um, so it's not just, I mean, I don't want to give the impression that this is just a 10, 20 minute intervention and then it's over. Yeah, and I will attest that we have, we have come back in for, I would call them tune-ups because yeah. it's going to creep back in. It's almost like, you know, you have to just kind of stay on top of it and right. uh, have your little tune-ups to make sure you're staying on track. And but it's really amazing that it does work so well. And there's quite a few people that suffer with this. The hardest part about treatment for OCD is that it, requires a person to sacrifice a little bit. And the same is true for um, hair pulling and skin picking. That's a different intervention, although um, there are some similarities, but it's, it's actually kind of a different intervention. But both of them require you to feel uncomfortable, whether you're wanting to pull a hair or wanting to pick on a part of your body or wanting to perform some sort of a, um, a ritual and you're not going to do it. That really requires a willingness to sit with that discomfort and to let it pass. And some people are ready to do that, and some people aren't. And so a lot of times in treatment, I spend time helping people move toward readiness, helping people open up to the idea that I'm going to not do these behaviors or not get this immediate gratification. I'm going to sit with this discomfort for a period of time and, and let that be okay. It's almost overcoming the fear of getting better and doing that. I mean, so many things in life you have to overcome and get to that next level and do something that takes you out of your comfortable, your right. comfort zone, and makes you vulnerable. Right. Um, yeah. well, some people have an idea that we're not supposed to feel anxious and that anxiety is bad. And, and the truth is, anxiety keeps us alive. You know, if, if the Mack truck is coming toward me and I don't jump out of the way and have that adrenaline rush, I'm not going to live very long. Uh, if my child wanders off at 10 o'clock at night and I don't panic and go look for him, there might be a bad outcome. And so anxiety is super important for us for survival. And people start to develop these beliefs that I'm not supposed to feel this way. This is a bad thing. I have to make this go away. And part of sort of my philosophy and belief system is if we can all embrace the fact that sometimes we're just not going to feel great. Some days are better than others. 
Sometimes I feel profound sadness. Sometimes I'm scared to death. You know, that all of these things are normal and natural feelings and, and not to judge them, but to maybe sort of take care of myself through those periods of time, we'd all be a whole lot happier. Yeah. Yeah, I like how you said that. It's almost like you just have to embrace that anxiety, let it let it go through and pass and then figure out, you know, the way not to feel that way again or solve that problem. Or just the maybe doing something a little bit different next time. So I won't get myself in the same situation, but the truth is there's always going to be anxiety. You know, things happen. The stock market, the price of oil, I mean, things happen that we can't control. And I think for people with anxiety, it really becomes about control mm -hmm. and trying to control things that we can't control. You know, right. the truth is, we don't really, we're not able to control much. And we certainly can't control the world market and the price of oil and what's going on in all parts of the world. But what people start to feel like they can control is their anxiety, whether it's skin picking or hair pulling or performing rituals, that makes their anxiety go away, so they, they assume that must be a good thing. Well, sometimes we use inappropriate strategies, and we're all guilty of that. I tell parents that all the time. I mean, people use alcohol or cigarettes or, or food or shopping or sex or whatever to feel better, and it's not always a great choice. And so... Part of therapy is learning to manage our anxiety and manage our, our feelings with, with good choices, choices that lead to health and wellness, not things that are going to lead just to feeling better, especially if it's going to have other negative consequences. Yeah. So what would be a process? I mean, even the general public, like you say, we all have things that go wrong in our life, the stock market, different things that happen. What are tips of how we should do uh, like the mind process we should go through when things happen so we do make good choices? Um, well, like I think three step, pro three step program when something bad happens, you should do one, two, three, or think of it in this way. I, I know it's not that simple, but just to. Right. So I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist, and so we always want to look at what we're thinking, okay? And, and every one of us has. A thought process. Um, I always say the person that lives in your head that talks to you all day. Well, if we really start to look at how we talk to ourselves and how we think about things, we start to get a lot of information. You know, are our thoughts really spending time about worry or about the past or we do really self-critical thoughts or fearful thoughts, mm -hmm. catastrophic thoughts? Um, so the first step is sort of analyzing how am I thinking about situations and is it rational? Am I really going to die if I'm five minutes late? Probably not. So, you know, it might be uncomfortable, it might be a bummer, but it's going to be okay in the end. And that might be a silly example, but people really kind of catastrophize, which leads to extreme feelings. So in, extreme thoughts lead to extreme feelings. And so, um, so most of the time people come to therapy because they feel uncomfortable. And I always say, well, let's go back and look at your thinking. Um, and then the third piece is our behaviors. What are we doing? to manage those feelings. And so if we're having extreme thoughts and extreme feelings, we might have extreme behaviors like rituals or avoidance or panic or anger or you know substance use and abuse. And so so it all fits together um, at like a puzzle, but it all goes back oftentimes to how we think about situations. So I don't know if that answered your question. I hope it did. It really does. And I like is that you say you really have to start with analyzing your thoughts. What am I thinking? Where am I going with that? Because the thoughts lead to behavior. Right. Right. 
Yeah. And the feelings and feelings don't just drop out of the sky. I tell clients that all the time. You're feeling really bad. Well, let's let's go back and think. What what were you thinking about? What are you worried about? Where what is that feeling based on? Oftentimes, saying it out loud, people will realize, well, that's ridiculous, or I know that's not going to happen, or you know, that's a catastrophic outcome that the likelihood is very, very small that that would actually happen. But but because it exists in our head, a lot of times we assume it's true. And so really analyzing that, writing it down or saying it out loud, and that's kind of the beauty of therapy is we're saying things out loud that before we're in the dark recesses of our mind feeling very scary and worrisome. And when we say it out loud, we can go, okay, well, I know that's ridiculous. And, um, and sort of normalize it and move away from it. But each of us develops sort of thought patterns in our minds and, and just becoming mindful of sort of your individual thought patterns can be super helpful in sort of looking at how you feel and how you behave. And I have all of my clients sort of monitor, notice, and be mindful of just where does your brain go most of the day? Are you worrying about the future? Are you planning your next move? Are you ruminating about the past and all the mistakes you made? Are you criticizing everything you do during the day? I mean, what, what's your self-talk? And so much can be learned about how to help a person by understanding those sort of thought patterns. Yeah, I think that's even helpful for someone who doesn't have OCD or hair pulling or um, the skin issue. Just in everyday life, I'm thinking, gosh, I don't know, I'm not even really cognizant of what's going on in my head every day. Am I really analyzing? how I'm processing things when they go right or wrong. And um, and I've seen where you've done this in therapy where people actually say something out loud because I, I think they keep it in the back of their head. Even myself or just people who may not suffer from that, do you say what you're afraid of out loud? It takes on a whole different meaning. When you say it out loud, it does sound kind of silly. Right. It's helpful. We should all sit around and talk about it sometime yeah. <laughs> at parties. What are you afraid of? You know, I mean, because it does it. And once you hear that other people share some of the same irrational, ridiculous fears or have some of the same irrational, ridiculous thoughts, it does normalize it and helps us to realize this is just sort of what our brains do. And I don't necessarily have to listen. And I don't, I certainly don't have to respond in, a, in an emotional way or behavioral way to that. I can just kind of say, okay, that was random. I'm having those self critical thoughts again. And now I'm back to, you know, whatever it is, the task at hand. Yeah. I think it's important because like Melanie said, sometimes we don't even think about that. And I know in my life, you know, I'm busy with work and kids and school and all the different things that were that has to go on that you forget to just kind of sit back and say, What was I just thinking? Why am I saying that? And you know, why am I telling myself that? And like you said, if you do say it out loud, it does usually sound very ridiculous. <laughs> and if you do challenge it, is if that thing happened, so what? You know, what What would happen if my daughter made a, an F on a test? Okay, you know, we'll get past it, we'll move forward. It doesn't mean it's the end of the world, you know. And so I think sometimes we build up all of these potential negative outcomes as the worst thing that could happen. And really, it's, it's, it's not such an, if you think about the potential outcome, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, and, and for everyday people, you, it's maybe not the twitch, but like you say, you grab for that glass of wine or a drink or you're, you know, eating something because, you know, you're stressed out and you start eating things that you shouldn't eat, the comfort food, and um, it's those other triggers. It's still part of the same symptoms, really. Absolutely. You know, you're covering it up with something or, or comforting yourself with something to make it feel better. Well, it's, it's what we call emotion regulation. 
and there's wonderful um, adaptive ways to regulate our emotions and then there's some very uh, maladaptive ways and I think all of us should take responsibility for how do we take care of ourselves what do we do when we're stressed what do we do when we're sad what do we do when um, we're frightened and we can if we're honest we'll you know have a few go-to's that may or may not be good choices and then really analyzing are there other choices I could be making that might be healthier for myself or even 50% of the time if there are other choices and then to try some of those and do a little experiment for a week I'm gonna do these other three things instead of the things I was doing before and maybe those are would have a better outcome or at least an equal outcome and none of the negative stuff and so absolutely I think all of this applies to everyone not just people suffering with obsessive compulsive and related disorders which are the hair pulling and skin picking and a couple others um, but but most of all of those things are about emotion and anxiety management and and so that's really what my job is as a psychologist is to help people to find better ways more adaptive ways to recognize and intervene um, and and then lose the importance of some of these maladaptive behaviors that have been causing problems all right I'm gonna invite um, I'm gonna invite y'all to write down for a day your thoughts analyze your thoughts and see what you come up with if you're running things of fear and how you react when something happens when you're stressed out or even when you're happy what you're doing I think it'd be a great exercise for you so um, I invite all of you to do that take on Dr. Suzanne's little um, advice and analyze what your thoughts are and your behavior that you have afterwards and write it down. You never know. You might get a book out of it when you do it. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. That's good. So tell us, Suzanne, about your next book. So you're in the process of writing it now. Is it specialized in one thing, or what are you going to be writing? Well, I'm actually writing it with Reed Gollum, who is the co-author on the Parent Guide to Hair Pulling Disorder. And we were invited to write this book, um, and it's in a book series that's geared toward therapists. Mm -hmm. And our topic is, and this is the one that we were invited to write on this topic of um, sensory um, processing issues as they relate to psychological problems. So what that means is oftentimes people come to therapy, children in particular, who are diagnosed with anxiety disorders or other problematic behaviors in children, and really there is an underlying sensory issue. For example, um, so say a child comes in with a phobia of thunderstorms and that's not uncommon but some of these kids it's not necessarily I think I'm gonna die or I think there's gonna be a flood or I think my mom might get killed it is I cannot stand the way the the lightning and thunder sounds and looks it's a scary flash of light and then a loud boom and it's painful to my ears and my eyes to hear that so it's there's a sensory basis to it but what happens is in therapy if it gets missed people that psychologists or therapists might go into exposure response prevention which is you know let's sit through the storms let's look at the bright lights and hear the noise which can actually exacerbate it and 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 what we've learned through the research is that people don't habituate or get used to those loud noises they can habituate to the anxiety over time that those loud noises might cause but they're still painful and so the intervention is a bit different and um, oftentimes these cases are therapy failures. Um, you know, the child didn't get better, the child got frustrated, the child started acting out and avoiding, the parents are frustrated, the therapist is frustrated because this is a treatment that should work. 
and it, it's evidence-based and why is it not working? Well, it's not working because there's a piece of the puzzle that's missing and that's that sensory piece. And so really the book is to help um, psychologists and therapists to identify when sensory dysregulation is what we're calling it because it really dysregulates the emotional system as well as the sensory system but how to treat it specifically. So we use a lot of case studies, examples um, of different disorders and, and actually how those disorders get treated. That's great. Yeah, we're excited about it. It's sort of a little talked about topic, especially within psychology. And, um, and so it'll be interesting to see how it's received, but, um, but, but we're excited about it. It was a fun book to write. And it took, we started writing in February. And we are just putting the finishing touches on it right now. So we're hoping to have it ready to go by the end of this year. Great. Terrific. Well, show us. I know you have your other books there. Um, pull up your other books for us so we can see those. So here is um, Out of the Rabbit Hole, A Roadmap to Freedom from OCD. And the other one is The Parent Guide to Hair Pulling Disorder. Um, and then the subtitle is Effective Parenting Strategies for Children with Trichotillomania. And they're both available on Amazon.com and, um, and, and both selling pretty steady. Um, and we've been very pleased with, with the outcome. So it's been a fun process. Well, we're going to put your books on our website as well. And so they can find them there. And um, do you have a website too for your books? Well, uh, my private practice website is HoustonPsychologist.com. That's psychologist with an S. And if you click on my link, you can see all the resources, um, including um, different websites that I've built over the years, but and, and as well these books. Awesome. And you know, I just wanted to say, I wanted to go back to that um, remarketing that second book and retitling it. That you kept the original book up, so and then you just updated the new book with the new title, so a little bit of new content and new subtitle. So really, she still can uh, sell both ways. I think that's brilliant that you didn't take the other one down. Well, you're sweet. The problem is the old book is now selling for $800. And so people, I do get emails every now and again saying, why is this book so expensive? That is ridiculous. And I said, no, buy the new one. I think it's because there's only a few copies left floating around. Well, you know, you can do that is we print through CreateSpace as well on Amazon. So you can load it up on CreateSpace and make it another paperback and make it available again. Yeah, so that's a great idea. Go in there and do that so it doesn't have to be $800. Maybe it'll be uh, $8.99 instead. Exactly. That would be nice. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming today. We really enjoyed it. You gave us a lot of wonderful content and educated, uh, um, educated us, and I learned a lot. I hope everybody else learned a lot, too. So, again, yeah. we'll have Dr. Susan Mot uh, Moten Odom's book on our website where you can find it. And um, we look forward to seeing you next time. We have, if you would like to write your book and be a number one bestseller, you can join us at our book writing retreats. We go down to the Dominican Republic, down at a villa. We stay at our own private villa. We have breakfast served to us by a chef every day. We have our own private pool. And we sit at the beach and you write your book. And uh, Jen and I help you with it every step of the way. And then we market and launch it for market and launch it for you. And if you'd like to work with us one-on-one, -on -one, you can do that as well. You can uh, contact us at EliteOnlinePublishing.com. And for the book writing retreats, it's BookWritingRetreats.com. So we'd love to have you join us either way and make you a number one best-selling author. Thanks again, Dr. Suzanne. For more information, you can visit our website at HotChicksWriteHotBooks.com 
or you can text your name and email address to 832-572-5285.